Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at New York University's Law School. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, Richard, as always, there's a lot to discuss, and today we're recording this on a particularly important day in Washington, D.C. This morning, the Senate Judiciary Committee convened for the confirmation hearing of William Barr to be the Attorney General of the United States. Barr is himself a former Attorney General in the Bush administration, the Bush Senior Administration, and he now returns for a possible elder statesman role in the Trump administration. The hearings have been going on for a few hours as we record this. Who knows what will follow in the afternoon portion of the session. But so far, Richard, what do you think of this nomination? And have you had a chance to tune in on the hearings at all? Well, I'm in California, so I was asleep during most of the time. So I cannot say that I saw them. But I know the dramatis personae, and I can have some sense of what's going on. I think that this is pretty solid nomination. Barr has been there before. He was there under a president who did not um, inspire partisans' anxieties. It's already clear that he understands the lay of the land and is not going to do anything to upset the Mueller examination unless the investigation and let it run to its clear. And so at that particular point, um, I think all the criticism has been based upon his previous doubts about the investigation, all which I might add I share, are not going to be enough to stop it. The Republicans have three votes. I like to say that it's not just a two-plus vote after the last election. Uh, Jeff Flake is no longer there, and he often lived up to his name when he was on the uh, various on the Senate committees, the Judiciary Committee. So I think he will be confirmed. Uh, the really important question is whether or not the Democrats are going to do what I think is perfectly appropriate when you're talking about key people in the senior cabinet of the president is to give some deference. Um, I understand why they want to fight very hard on Supreme Court justices. Rumor has it that they last for more than four years, and if that's the case, you're binding future generations. But that's not the case with an attorney general. And as that's the situation, I would hope that he would get a lot of Democratic support. I also think it's in the interest of the Democrats to give him that particular kind of support uh, because they want to establish some degree of collaboration. There's a lot of ruckus that the House of Representatives can kick up, and I'm sure they will. But if they're trying to do this as a more comprehensive investigation, they'll be much more credible if the House and the Senate Democrats are willing to team up a little bit with Mr. Barr. He's not a man known for precipitous judgment. He doesn't have any partisan baggage with him the way in which um, uh, Jeff Sessions did. So I think this will go through. I hope it goes through with well over 60 votes. Well, Richard, I agree completely with your assessment of the nomination. And as somebody who's been pretty rough on the Trump administration from time to time on this podcast when they've gotten things wrong, I definitely want to applaud what they get right. I think this is a great example. William Barr comes in as almost an elder statesman in this administration, an experienced attorney general brought back to the administration once again. Somebody who, like uh, Michael Mukasey, and Fred Fielding in the later years of the George W. Bush administration can bring stability and gravitas and bipartisan respectability to the work of his department. I think all three of those things are important. In the Justice Department, you've had such uh, such change in recent years. You've had departures, people like Rachel Brand, in major positions that have not been filled. You had great delay in, in getting the confirmation of other uh, major officials within the administration within the Justice Department. There's the news that Rod Rosenstein will soon be leaving. I think bringing in somebody like Barr uh, will first and foremost bring stability to the Justice Department when it's well it's well needed. Second, I think he brings bipartisan respectability. Now we'll see how this plays out in the confirmation hearing, and I'll get back to that in a second. But Barr does not come from partisan politics. I can't recall any real major criticism in recent years of his record as attorney general in the Bush administration. He comes in with a clean slate in terms of of partisan politics. And then finally, as I said, I think he'll bring real gravitas to the work of the Justice Department and also uh, more broadly to the work of the Trump administration. Needless to say, the Justice Department finds itself in so many of the most controversial uh, debates surrounding this administration either because of things like the Mueller investigation, which are within the Justice Department, or things happening elsewhere in the, Justice, in the Trump administration that the Justice Department ultimately has to weigh in on, either in litigation or through the Office of Legal Counsel. I think now you need somebody like Barr with real gravitas to put, uh, to put seriousness and weight 
behind the work of the Justice Department. So I applaud this completely. The morning session of the hearing seemed to go very well. Senator Feinstein and others tried to pin him down on the points that you would expect in terms of how much latitude he will give uh, Mueller in his investigation, the circumstances under which Mueller might be subject to removal, namely good cause removal under the, uh, under the controlling regulation. They've asked him a variety of questions about whether he's prejudged matters in the investigation and so on. And Barr's answers, and I'm, I've been playing catch-up just following uh, some, some coverage of the, of the hearings in the morning. It looks like he answered these questions very, very well. He didn't pre-commit himself, and I think that's important. He can't pre-commit himself to giving no oversight to the Mueller hearing. But I think he struck the right balance between reassuring the senators and also entering the job with, the, with an open mind and the flexibility necessary for him to make good faith judgments as new facts arise. And so I think he did a great job of, of disarming some of the senators' fears on that. It'll be interesting, though, to see what actually comes out of the, the Democratic senators when it comes time for them to vote. For all of the controversy over so many of President Trump's nominations uh, in the executive branch, uh, it will be interesting to see if Democrats give any votes to this. It's hard to imagine President Trump finding a better candidate than Barr uh, within the Republican legal establishment. Uh, a, a better candidate in terms of experience and also in terms of a lack of controversy. It's hard to imagine him coming up with a better pick. And if the Democrats can't get behind uh, William Barr on this, I think it's hard to really take them seriously when they raise complaints about other appointments. Sorry Boy, to filibuster have- there, Richard. Yeah, I agree with that. I just want to make one other point. I mean, one of the things that everybody says about Donald Trump, it's important to have around him strong advisors who will keep him back from jumping over the cliff. And um, putting somebody like Barr in office who is a steady hand may restrain the president on some of his uh, excesses doing with such things as the wall. We're going to get to that, I think, today. But here's just one obvious situation. Uh, you're going to need an attorney general opinion or from somewhere in the Justice Department as to whether or not you can make a unilateral appropriation on that. And if somebody like Barr says no, it's going to make life much more difficult for Trump and much much better for everybody else. So I think it's in the Democratic situation to have him there rather than keeping with another acting attorney general who knows what he will say. And since it turns out Rosenstein is leaving, I think it's even more important that we have some continuity at the top. Absolutely. And one thing about Barr, since he's already had this job before, and he's already late in his career. He doesn't need this job as much as others might. It's, it's not evident that he's taking this position as a stepping stone to anything else. He's never going to be nominated as a judge or anything else. He's not going to run for elected office. And he's already had a lucrative legal career. And so it's not as though he's using this as a stepping stone to some sort of general counsel job. He's already had those jobs. So he's able to enter this job in a spirit of public service, He can uh, be a faithful steward of the Justice Department. And when it comes time to disagree with either the people below him or the people above him, I think he'll be able to do it freely, not worrying about losing this job because he just doesn't need the job in the way that somebody using it as a stepping stone would. So I think he's a, a, a great, great pick. It'll be interesting to see again what the Democrats have to say about this. Richard, one, one question, though. As I said in the, in the hearing, there have been times when the Democratic senators have tried to pin him down on, on either protecting Mueller, allowing the investigation to go certain ways, asking him to pre-commit to disclosing documents, the reports, and so on. This comes up sometimes in judicial nominations, and judges are always able to say, I can't pre-commit to these positions because I have to, as a judge, have to reach them with an open mind. Is there any danger with a, an executive branch appointment that either the nominee will refuse, let me put it this way, is there a danger in committing at, to the requests of the, uh, of the senators? Yes, I, I'm very much against any pre-commitment by anybody. The executive branch is supposed to be independent of that. And if it turns out that there's new information, I think the attorney general should be free to act on it, whichever way he goes. If he changes his mind, uh, I think he can make weak predictions of what he's going to do. But I think it's very improper for people to insist upon that. And I think it's improper for him to do it. And my own view about this is it's not just the Mueller investigation. It's not just Bill Barr. It's any key a nomination and so forth. There's a, what happens is the Senate has one shot at this guy. It could say yes or no, but it cannot say yes 
but or yes if in the way in which it does it. So to give you something else, which I think is also flatly unconstitutional, I suppose they had somebody like Bill Barr and they don't like his views on immigration, but they liked it on everything else. They said, Mr. Barr, do you agree to recuse yourself from any and all decisions having to do um, with immigration since so they come to the Department of Justice? I don't think that that's an acceptable situation. You have to take it all the way. It's a bundle. It's a package. It's not that I, I'm happy about voting for people when I disagree with them on certain key issues, uh, but you have to remember this is a structural issue. And if one person could demand the condition, then anybody else could demand the Tishkin. And after a while, you have a Swiss cheese arrangement. You can't cover immigration, but immigration turns out to be uh, relevant to employment policy, and you can cover employment policy. So are you in or are you out? I think uh, they're allowed to ask. Certainly you can't stop them. But I think that he should be uh, remind them that it's inappropriate for him to answer, and I think he should do it. I do recall, for example, when Justice Kagan had written as an academic, she said, sure, I'll answer all the questions. I think everybody should do that. And then the moment she got into her hearing, uh, she basically learned from Muhammad Ali that rope-a-dope is the correct strategy under these circumstances and behaved by everybody else. Uh, so I, I agree with you on that point pretty emphatically. I think the Democrats are way out of line to the extent that they do it. And if the tables were turned and the Republicans tried the same thing, I think that they would be way out of line as well. The recusal issue did come up this morning, according to coverage that I've seen. Some senators from the, the Democratic senator asked Barr whether he would commit to going along with the recommendation of the Justice Department's ethics office on the question of whether he should recuse or not. And as I understood uh, his answer, again, from the news coverage, uh, he responded that he would commit to taking seriously their recommendation, but he wouldn't commit to following it. Ultimately, he said it's his duty as the head of the department to make those determinations. That's not necessarily a politically satisfactory answer from the Democratic standpoint, but I think it's totally the right answer, and I was very impressed by Barr by making uh, so plain that point, knowing that it was not the answer that Democrats want to hear. Richard, they, the Democrats also asked Rod, uh, William Barr about who is deputy about the deputy attorney general who you know whether he had any role in Rosenstein deciding to leave does he have any thoughts on who might replace him uh, should we throw your hat in the ring as deputy attorney general Oh, I think that would be absolutely wonderful. I could imagine the pandemonium that would arise, uh, the joys and exaltation from the Democrats that somebody who's not a regular line Republican is applied for the job. Um, a thank you and no thank you, I think, is the appropriate attitude. I really do think that somebody has to be something of a political animal to take those jobs. And one of the reasons why I think that you're allowed to play rope-a-dope and should play rope-a-dope on the pre-commitment question, whether it be on recusal or anything else, is if you do decide to go forward with something when there's a conflict of interest, uh, you're going to be subject to a lot of very heavy political pressures. Uh, and so I think, in effect, when you start dealing with the attorney general, this is not like a judicial appointment. He's not free and clear once he gets nominated and confirmed. He's going to have to face these guys all the time in the way in which judges do it not. Just to think of it this way, suppose that the, you disagree with the judicial decision. Do you think the Senate Judiciary Committee can take a judge who voted against its own predisposition, bring him up and start to grill him as to why he decided it that way? I would think that that would never, ever happen, nor should it happen, but I think it's it's perfectly appropriate for the Senate to try to grill a political actor, namely the attorney general, when it does something which it thinks untoward. So given the fact that you've got the back-end check, I don't think you want to really be uh, tolerate a situation in which they're demanding pre-commitment from these guys. You know, it's interesting how little the Constitution says about all of these issues, but I think if you kind of work through the general question of executive responsibility, this would be the way I would do it more or less in a corporate context, and I think it's an intelligent precedent here. Well, the Barr nomination isn't the only uh, interesting development in the Justice Department since we last spoke. Another recent blockbuster news event of the last couple of days is the New York Times revelation that in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of President Trump's firing of, of FBI Director James Comey, the FBI responded by opening up an investigation into President Trump, namely a national security investigation or a, and also a, a criminal investigation into uh, whether he had obstructed justice with that firing. Now, it's short-lived, of course, because uh, the Deputy Attorney, Attorney General very promptly appointed Mueller as the special counsel. But the fact that the FBI opened this investigation was a major news event. It was interesting to watch uh, folks on both sides of these ongoing debates uh, read 
uh, read this development. It was like a natural uh, Rorschach test. All the president's critics read this news as supporting their view that President Trump had either violated the law or colluding with Russia, right? Because the FBI had opened an investigation. And why would it have opened an investigation if it didn't really believe that President Trump had done these bad things? On the other hand, the president's defenders uh, reacted to this by saying that this was an attempt by uh, Andrew McCabe and by President Trump's favorites, uh, Peter Strzok and Elisa Page, to retaliate against President Trump and to try to undermine him politically uh, because of what he had done to James Comey. And so having laid it out there, Richard, I'm, I'm very interested in your sort of scholarly, academic, and detached view of the latest uh, Mueller investigation, or sorry, uh, FBI investigation controversies. Well, I mean, I don't know if I could be scholarly detached on this issue. I've always thought that in many ways, uh, Robert Mueller was the worst person uh, to appoint to this particular situation because he had so many ongoing conflicts and commitments. Uh, you mentioned the cast of characters that ran this investigation. These were all Comey allies. They were all violent anti-Trumpers. Uh, the thought that they would want to do this behind the back of the assistant attorney general or the deputy attorney general or even the acting chief who's going to be coming in it speaks to me as being a very, very bad kind of situation and probably proves that the president was right in getting rid of Mr. Comey. I mean, you know, I know Jim Comey. I cannot tell you how stunned I am at what I regard as a colossal series of overreaching aggrandizements and blunders on his part, uh, starting as early as 2015 and seemingly committing unabated now, moving into four years. He has become the quintessential political animal. So I would have shut that thing down immediately. Um, and I said, if you want to do this, it's going to have to go through channels. Uh, the question would be then whether the president has to recuse himself in some sense from dealing with this issue. I think the answer legally is no. I think to the extent that he is the chief executive officer, he can shut this thing down. But again, he's going to have to pay a very heavy political price if he does so, which is why he's let this uh, misguided Mueller investigation run on as long as it has. But I think in effect that this is actually confirmation of the position that others have taken, that the Justice Department was hopelessly compromised through the FBI all the way in the final period of the Obama administration. And I, I put the blame to some extent on the president of the United States then, which is Obama, who did nothing whatsoever to check the FBI. FBI, knowing full well that it was in the corner of Mrs. Clinton, whom he desperately wanted to have to be reelected. And if you're going to start to talk about obstruction charges by making hints here, there, and the other place, uh, just remember what ourself, uh, what um, uh, Barack Obama said in April of 2016 about Hillary Clinton. He said, you know, she really means the best for the United States, and I think it would be completely misguided for anybody uh, to open up to an investigation into the way in which she operated herself, including the email mail server. Um, I don't think the president of the United States should actually make any statement like that, public or private. And that seems to me to be much more of an obstruction than anything that Trump had done. And remember, my view about Trump is he were to resign for tomorrow, I would do a great happy dance because I don't think he's an appropriate person to be president of the United States. Uh, but inappropriate is one thing and committing uh, impeachable offenses or uh, removable offenses is quite another. And I have been very, very disappointed with the FBI investigation on all of these issues because I don't think that it has come up with anything at all. Uh, this is obviously a partisan issue. And on this particular question, I think the president is right. And I think that his opponents turn out to be wrong. Um, I would have fired Comey. Um, my only question to ask is whether or not he should be subject to criminal charges for some of the things that he did, including you know, all the abuse of the public records of the FBI in his private hands. These are all very, very serious issues. And the fact that he does not receive any serious criticism today from the anti-Trump groups indicates, I think, that they have a kind of splenetic hatred of the president, which doesn't allow them uh, to distinguish the good and the bad charge. As you know, Adam, every time I speak about Trump, it's always Trump a la carte. Uh, he may get a 10 on one issue and a zero on the next issue. And if you're trying to be this detached academic that you're uh, charging me with being, what you have to do is you have to be able to grade him individually on the individual items and not to give a, a sort of a universal flunk and then not look at any of the particular issues. Well, for our listeners, I'd highly, highly recommend 
the piece that our colleague Jack Goldsmith wrote on this news. Jack's a law professor at, at Harvard, a senior fellow at Hoover, and more importantly, uh, for present purposes, he, he ran the Office of Legal Counsel uh, in the for in the George W. Bush administration and is one of the nation's leading commentators on this aspect of, of, of the Trump administration. And this piece that he published on Sunday at the Lawfare blog, it's titled, On What Grounds Can the FBI Investigate the President as a Counterintelligence Threat? He raises, I think, profoundly important questions. It goes back to what it is exactly that the FBI is in a position to judge, and namely, what is a threat to national security? Because after all, we elect somebody to be in charge of defining the national interest. It's the president of the United States. In terms of foreign policy, as the Supreme Court has said for a long time, uh, the president is the sole organ of the federal government in terms of uh, foreign affairs. The president ultimately, more than anybody else in our government, certainly more than people within his own administration, are responsible for determining what is in the national, what is national security, what is a threat to national security, and so on. And so the FBI's decision to designate the president himself as possibly being involved in a threat to national security seems to get things totally upside down. President Trump, for better and for worse, decides what is in the national interest. Now, we turn, in terms of grading things a la carte, since I praised him on the bar nomination, this is my chance to go a la carte and criticize. Obviously, I think President Trump's instincts on foreign policy have been, have been uh, in some ways catastrophically wrong for the number of reasons that our former colleague James Mattis outlined in his resignation letter. President Trump's uh, just perplexing, really strange approach to Russia and the way he talks about Putin and others, I think does more harm than good by far. And also, I think, complicates the work of the national security apparatus of the United States as they try to do the work of the American people pursuant to the laws that Congress passes and the directives of the president appointed to lead them. Now, that said, again, President Trump causes a lot of these problems, but it's important that the other parts of our government react correctly in their own institutional roles. And I do have real concerns about the FBI purporting to define against the president what is the national interest. I work uh, when I'm not at Hoover. I'm at the George Mason uh, Antonin Scalia Law School running the Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And one issue uh, that I bump up against over and over again in my work on the administrative state, is the, 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 the phenomenon of an agency bureaucracy defining for itself what it sees as its mission, uh, regardless of the laws that Congress passes, regardless of the directions of the lawfully elected and appointed leaders. The bureaucracy has a tendency to decide for itself what it thinks its mission is, and I think that's uh, totally, uh, totally wrong in our constitutional system. This seems to be a reiteration of that, of people within the bureaucracy purporting to define over their own elected leaders what the proper mission of the agency is. Now, I disagree with you a little bit. I, I don't think the president is immune from oversight by somebody, but let me give two other ways. First of all, I think that the FBI essentially only conducts investigations pursuant to somebody in the Department of Justice. And so the appropriate way to do on this thing at the very least is to first go up the ranks outside the FBI to somebody who's in the attorney general's office proper and at least ask what is going to be going on in that case. And I think what they would be told quite correctly is this is not your job to do. Um, so I think that if they did that, it would change their behavior. And if it turns out that there was some concern, then the question is, what do you next? And I think you mentioned something about Congress. And I think that's the place to which you go. Congressional oversight of the president um, is, I think, a perfectly respectable part of the American Constitutional Commission. And if it turns out that the FBI wanted to go alone, and I was in Congress, I would say, first clear it with other people in the Justice Department. But if you've done that, then it seems to me that they should take this seriously into account and figure out what's going on one way or the other. And, you know, we've seen when the Republicans were in control of the House of Representatives, they were willing to investigate various kinds of things relating to the presidential election, including all the stuff with the Steele dossier and so forth. And I think that that would be appropriate with respect to Trump. But the idea that the FBI would do this in secret and do it unilaterally um, only confirms the judgment that anybody who was involved in that should have been fired a long time ago. And so I think it's actually a very, very bad sign on the way things come. And it has this other kind of very untoward consequence. And there's probably a lot out 
there, particularly in foreign policies, especially with relationships to Russia, for which Trump has a lot to answer. But you deflect the responsibility that he bears for these actions uh, by trying to take him on in what I regard as a wholly politically inept and probably illegal way to do it, and it kind of boosts him up. Uh, if you want to get the president for his own derelictions, you cannot do it by giving him talking points against you, because if there's one thing that Mr. Trump is a presidential genius, it's turning the tables and making the other guy the subject of the investigation. Uh, he's really good at doing that kind of thing, and so if you're going after him, you have to be absolutely scrupulous that you haven't done anything wrong, and I think that the F, this is just another piece of evidence uh, that in the late Obama years that the FBI clearly lost sight of its mission and its role. Huge portion of that responsibility falls on Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe, and so forth. I think a fair bit of it actually falls on the president of the United States, Barack Obama, and uh, his attorney generals at the time. So I'm not uh, very keen on, on the way in which they behaved up to January 20th, 2017. Yeah, just to put a fine point on what I was saying earlier, about uh, the national interest with with President Trump and his approach to Russia, I, I as a as an amateur, just as watching it from like everybody else watching it unfold on TV and in the newspapers, I think that his approach to Russia is wrong and 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 extremely strange in the way he speaks about Putin. That said, if the President of the United States decides to reorient the nation's uh, diplomatic posture towards Russia. That's ultimately the president's prerogative, uh, just as it was President Obama's prerogative to open new channels to the Republic of Iran. I think, again, catastrophic mistake and utterly misguided, but ultimately it was up to the president to do that. It would have been interesting to see the FBI during the Obama years opening national security investigation into President Obama over his sudden decision to open these doors to Iran. Or if we see in the next uh, presidential administration, a, a, if, a, if a Democratic president decides to open new channels to a foreign country that's not currently one of our allies, could the FBI open a national, a national security investigation into that? No, this is absolutely the wrong way to go. As you mentioned, the proper role for oversight here falls to Congress. Congress needs to do this. Now, of course, Congress is limited in what it can do because of uh, the issue of executive privilege, of national security classification. Congress does not have access to the documents it necessarily needs. Uh, that is a function of our constitutional structure. That's just the way it is. There's only so much Congress can do to force that issue. So I understand why Congress likes outsourcing. Even a Democratic Congress hostile to President Trump likes outsourcing this, by and large, to Mueller. Uh, but that seems to be a big mistake, and I thought it was a mistake under a Republican Congress. I think it's a mistake under a Democratic Congress. I think that Congress needs to take seriously its oversight responsibilities and not just outsource this for whatever reason to somebody within the executive branch or to some so-called independent counsel. Ultimately, Congress needs to do its own job. I have one no. last comment. You no, of course, please. The, um, use the term the president is our sole organ in foreign affairs, which comes from the great Curtis Wright case in the mid-1930s. Um, I think this certainly is the case that the president has to take the weed hand in this, but there have been later decisions, most notably the Zivotofsky case, which affirmed the presidential authority on the question of whether or not to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel or to put it on an American passport. But that decision also said there's something about Curtis Wright we don't like, and clearly we can't go as far as that statement. Uh, but they didn't tell us is how far you go back in the opposite direction. And this is, I think, one of the sort of great un, uh, say, unsolved problems of American constitutionalism. Uh, if you look at the enumerated powers that Congress has, probably close to half of them in one way or another relate to foreign affairs. And it makes it very odd to say that the president is, in the face of all, all that uh, enumeration, um, the sole organ. But trying to figure out where you cut back is, is kind of difficult. Um, I don't think it is on these recognition debates, and it's certainly not on how the president speaks to Mr. Putin. But I also think it's not only congressional oversight. I think every time the press wants to take after the president for what it regards as incongruous and incomprehensible statements, they're allowed to do so. And I hope it will give him a very high political cost because I think in his relationships with Putin, he is a cross between naive, reckless, and irresponsible, dealing with one of the shrewdest and most evil people on the face of the globe. 
The sole organ line uh, that we've been mentioning, it was used by the Supreme Court in the Curtis Wright case in the 30s. It actually dates all the way back to, I think, Chief Justice John Marshall. Before he was Chief Justice, before he was a member of con- when he was a member of Congress, he used that line. Now, as you mentioned, it's been subject to a lot of debate. It's often distorted and exaggerated, so I don't want to go overboard with this. What All that I mean is the president in conducting diplomacy is the sole representative of the United States with broad latitude to decide the course of strategy. Now, when it comes to the domestic ramifications of this, the legal impact of diplomacy, Congress definitely has a lot to say. That's why I was very sympathetic to the losing side in the Zivotofsky case. That was the case where where uh, there's a question of where Congress yeah. could require the president to recognize Jerusalem as part of Israel on United States uh, passports. I think that there, that was a very hard question. I think there are a lot of hard questions around there. But on the, just the question about diplomatic outreach to foreign emissaries, for better or for worse, that is within, I think, the president's sole okay. power. Yeah, I was uneasy about Zivotofsky, but on balance, I thought it was correct, mainly because when the text gives up, you have to follow consistent patterns and practices as your hint of what's going on. And certainly on recognition issues, especially with Israel, it has been presidential pretty much all the way, going back to Truman's original decision when it came to voting in the UN on the uh, existence of the state of Israel and the Great Settlement. And then I think in his early recognition of Israel, uh, even as the war was going on, against the five invading Arab armies. But this is a very tough question, uh, but there are still some easy questions or some easy answers, and the FBI was way out of line. Well, let's wrap up our conversation today with another aspect of presidential power, uh, namely the so-called emergency powers. In the last few days, we've seen a lot of debate over whether President Trump could unilaterally begin work or, or continue work on the Mexican border wall even without an appropriation from Congress, the argument being that a number of federal statutes already give him the authority to act unilaterally upon the declaration of a national emergency. There's a few statutes we've seen bandied about, one that allows the president in an emergency to build infrastructure needed to support the the mission of the armed forces. So you think of, say, the Army Corps of Engineers building a bridge or other infrastructure necessary for a a military emergency mission. Uh, There's also some authority in another statute for the president to reprogram funds assigned elsewhere for military tasks to uh, the building of infrastructure. All of this would turn on the president's declaration of an emergency. The question is, can the president just declare an emergency without any oversight? Does Congress have anything to say about it? Do the courts have anything to say about this? Now, your your other uh, podcast colleague, John Yu, recently had an op-ed in which uh, he argued that the courts will almost surely defer to President Trump's declaration of an emergency. I have to say, uh, for my own my own part, I wrote a piece for Commentary Magazine on their website over the weekend saying that truly – well, it's true that, that, that the courts generally defer to a president's uh, characterization of emergencies or their national security interests. I think we do need to wonder how much deference this particular president will get for a variety of reasons. But before we get into the nuances of President Trump, I'm just curious, Richard, for your thoughts on this idea of presidential emergency powers, either under the Constitution or under statutes. Well, I think the question of whether or not the president has emergency powers in cases of dire national necessity and so forth, the answer has always been yes. Uh, If you go back to the situation having to do with the separation of powers over the conduct of wars, the Constitution clearly gives Congress the power to declare wars, and then it announces that the president is the commander-in-chief, presumably with something to say as to how that war is to be carried out. But even in these early debates, somebody said if the United States is attacked by a foreign nation, nation and the president is no longer around and Congress can't declare war, you don't have to sit there and get pummeled until that could be done. You could always use force in a national emergency against those who want to attack you. 
And if you then go further into our history, it's pretty clear that everybody is understood. Uh, the emergency powers are essential in every area of life. Um, they not only allow you to avoid certain kinds of um, congressional necessities in, in private law situations. If there's an emergency, somebody, either the public or even a private party, can take the private property of another individual, use it to deal with the emergency, escape criminal sanctions, and in most but not all cases be required to pay compensation. Uh, but you have to remember that all of these cases have defined an emergency very nicely. So uh, to give an example, that I think relates to the war. Suppose your neighbor is out of town and you look at his lawn and you see that it's getting a little bit parched. Can you march over to his house, turn on his hose, put the thing out, and then demand that he pay you for saving his lawn? Lawn? I think the answer to that question is no. It's a long-term persistent condition. He could have hired somebody else to do it. When you look at the war, I think the claim that this is an emergency is a laughable one. Uh, first of all, there's nothing sudden about this situation. There's nothing about national security about this situation. There was a very nice graphic this morning in the New York Times, uh, which showed the number of illegal immigrants coming over the border, and that number is way down in the last two years relative to what it was, for example, in the Clinton years, probably by about a factor of three or four. Uh, there's nothing whatsoever remotely like an emergency. The president might want to point, and I'll just make this last point, to Hawaii against Trump where he did win, and I thought that decision was correct, uh, but it was completely different in terms of what was going on relative to this case on both grounds. First of all, I mean, the president was chastised, rightly in my view, uh, for his rather intemperate remarks during the campaign uh, about what he thought about illegal aliens coming into the United States, uh, but I also thought that the Chief Justice Roberts was correct when he said he cured it in two ways. One is he actually had a lot of intense interagency review on the question, which indicated that the problem was alive and that the decision that he made would be subject to revision. You could take nations on or off the particular list. And that secondly, uh, it turned out that many of the people who were on this particular list nations were also on a similar list by Obama uh, because there was 9-11 and there have been other terrorist incidents that have taken place. And trying to keep known terrorists out of the United States is not quite the same thing as trying to shut off immigration coming in from Latin America. So on both substance and procedure, I think the two cases are radically different. And it's not just that the question that the president has to make a declaration. He has to make a declaration that it's essential to the security of the United States to do these things. And if the word essential is used in anything like its standard meaning, it hasn't been made out in this particular case. And indeed, similar terms were involved in one of these recent cases having to do with land use planning. And the government lost when it said that there was a necessity in order to confiscate land of a whole variety of other purposes. So I think, in effect, he's going to lose and rightly lose on this one big time um and i think he ought to lose on this question i think his behavior on this issue has been obnoxious obstructive uninformed uh largely self-destructive to the nation and, and he should back off there's nothing about what congress has done that is inappropriate when it refuses to make an appropriation and for him to turn the nation into knots because he doesn't get his way is the kind of petulant behavior that we expect from five-year-old children, but not from the president of the United States. Well, let me make the case then for President Trump declaring this an emergency. You said that things are much better now on the borders than they were during the Obama administration, and that's true. But the fact remains that there are a number of people, uh, every day, thousands of people coming across the border or overstaying visas and so on. Some of them are coming up from Mexico Given the that expansive border, and given that its own other that Mexico's own other borders are not necessarily uh, 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 impenetrable, it's not hard to imagine terrorists or drug traffickers or others entering Mexico and then entering the United States. And even if it's just a matter of a small handful of Americans being murdered by people who came into the country illegally, and then people who buy drugs. And, and overdose or have their lives ruined, even if that's a relatively small number, uh, every life matters, and that is sufficient for President Trump to declare an emergency. Now, we can, I, I'm skeptical of that argument. I think it's overstated. But that said, as I was saying earlier with the FBI, we elect somebody to make these decisions, right? We elect our president of the United States. And under the statutes, too, it seems to vest the president 
with pretty broad discretion, maybe even unlimited discretion, to define something as an emergency. What do you think about that, Richard? Well, I I think that means that we could define as an emergency between the United States and England because somebody who got off an airplane may commit murder. Um, I believe that the discretion is limited. And this goes back to the uh, odd question. Is it the conservatives generally who say when we're talking about delegation in the administrative state, uh, we are very suspicious of Chevron deference because what it does is it takes away from the court the power to determine what the law says and gives it to a series of agency people who have all sorts of biases in their own favor, and that uh, demanding that they sort of get the right answer de novo is appropriate in that context. De novo review is not appropriate in this context. It is an administrative decision, uh, but the discretion is not completely unbounded. And if you want to make this, it cannot be the case that you can declare an emergency by showing that sometime in the next year, one person coming in over the Mexican border will, in effect, commit some felony in the United States. Uh, The more relevant figure would be what's the frequency of serious crimes by illegal aliens in the United States. And the answer to that question is it's lower than crime committed by domestic American citizens. And one of the reasons it's so lower is if you're somebody who's illegal in the United States and you commit some kind of felony, not only do you suffer the criminal punishment of 60 days in jail, you get deported. And people understand this perfectly well. There is no good interface that we've been able to develop between the criminal justice system and the immigration authority deportation system. And so that tends to keep people out of line. And the second point that you mentioned is that this is a wall that is not going to do very much. Here are the problems. You say that many of the difficulties come with people staying overstaying their visas. A wall will not stop that particular problem. And indeed, a wall will not stop the problems of what I regard the abuse of uh, births you know, birth, birthright citizenship of uh, basically tourists coming into the United States when they're eight months pregnant, having birth of their children, going back to Russia or wherever it is, claiming they're American citizens. I think that that's also wrong and something should do data. People can come in by boats. And of course, the most important way you get drugs and other stuff into the United States is you smuggle them in through cars. And these cars go through checkpoints already. And a wall is not going to stop all of that. Um, it will make the trip a little bit longer for some other people. And it's not just the $5 billion to put this thing up that one has to worry about. It's the massive dislocations and everything else that is going to take place uh, when this becomes there. I think the money is better spent on other areas. If you can tell me, Adam, and I think you you can't do it, I can't do it, but if there's some particular hot spot where a wall may make sense, I'm all in favor of trying to do it that way. But it has to be a particularized showing and not the general statements of the president. Indeed, he has been intellectually irresponsible because when all of these criticisms are raised, he never once answers them except for the fact that anybody who wants to take the opposite position on him doesn't care about the security of the people of the United States. And that's a kind of presidential blustering and name-calling that we really don't need under these circumstances. So if he went to Congress, as he should, and says, look, this is the area where my agents in the field report that there's some serious difficulties for which a wall may make a difference. I would listen to that very, very carefully. But it's the problem is given his truculence on this issue, he has no credibility and he seems to have no ability to back down. And this is going to come to a crisis when the airline transportation system comes on hold as we start having all the security guards walk off. This is beginning to happen. And when it does happen full force, it's all going to be in Mr. Trump's lap doing this stuff. I mean, my view is I never thought he was a good president, even though I agree with many of the decisions that he makes. But I think he's getting worse. I think he's losing all sense of reality. I think he's gotten to the point now where the only thing he can cares about his own legacy and his own preferences, and that's an extremely difficult way uh, to run a country. Your job is to sacrifice yourself for the greater good, not to sacrifice everybody else in order to satisfy your pre-commitments, none of which are re-examined in the basis of new evidence. You made a point uh, at the outset of, the, of that, that answer that I do want to just highlight a little bit. It's a small point, but I think it's important. Uh, among conservative lawyers, especially among conservative lawyers who focus on relationship between the courts and the administrative state. In recent years, there's been a backlash against what we call deference, judicial deference to the executive branch's legal interpretations. There's been calls by many to get rid of Chevron deference and so on and just have the courts read the law. It's ironic, to say the least, 
to see in this debate over these emergency power statutes the people who have been most vigorously calling for an end to judicial deference suddenly calling for or depending upon judicial deference to the president's interpretation of these particular statutes. I think that's ironic to say the least, and I'll just leave it at that. There's two deeper points that I try to allude to in my commentary piece. I won't recount them now because we've already gone on for quite a bit, but I'll just make in passing really quickly. First of all, I think this debate is one that really highlights the fact that you, it's very hard, perhaps impossible, to separate questions of a president's policies from questions of a president's character. A lot of the president's uh, defenders and supporters, or people who just don't like President Trump, but they like his policies, oftentimes we like to say that you know we, we set character aside and focus just on policy outcomes. This is an issue where it's impossible to separate the character question from the policy question, because ultimately the president's ability to declare an emergency and get the courts to back off from overseeing or micromanaging his declaration of an emergency really depends on the amount of trust that judges, including Supreme Court justices, are willing to put in a given president's judgment. These doctrines of deference on emergency powers and declarations of emergencies, they emerged over the course of many decades, and I think it's fair to say that all of them were premised upon a president doing the sorts of things a normal president does, saying the sorts of things a normal president does, this pr- what we call a presumption of regularity in the processes that go uh, into making policy judgments of this type. President Trump, for better and for worse, campaigned on a sort of flouting of presidential conventions, and he's governed uh, by flouting presidential conventions. So often he gives speeches where he jokes that it's it's hard, it's easier to act presidential than to do the things that President Trump does. I think that's wrong, and I think that we're going to find out in this case that if a president doesn't act presidential, it's you can't count as easily on the courts to to act as though he's being presidential. Richard, do you just, have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do, because I, I mean I agree with you. Let me give the concrete illustration of that. The Hawaii versus Trump decision was five to four. And the reason why the majority of five voted for it is they were convinced it was not a presidential decision as such, but it was an institutional decision in which other people in the executive branch. So the position of the majority was what the president said during the campaign and afterwards was royally stupid, uh, but that other people, heads and folks came in. Uh, If you looked at the four dissenters, two of them, Sotomayor and Ginsburg, say this stuff is so raw, so ugly, so inexcusable that there's no amount of subsequent process that can cure the defect. And so we're going to vote against him. I regard that as a very dangerous doctrine because it then means that the president, even if he's right, is going to be debarred. And I think they overrate the element. But you can't turn around and tell them, you know, sorry about this, Ms. Sotomayor, Ms. Ginsburg, you really didn't understand the thing. The president could do whatever he wants. They're making a very telling point about some inexcusable behavior. So then you get the other two, which are Breyer and Kagan. And and Breyer writes this, and, and, you know, I can't say that he's crazy. Quite the opposite. I think he's sensible. He says, look, I would really like to know more about this question. That Breyer always says that. And then the question is, well, I don't have this information. What would I do? Well, my attitude would be, all right, I will vote with the majority, having given my misgivings in the concurrence. And if further evidence comes up that this has been a corrupt process, I'll change my mind and hope that local courts will do so. But he didn't say that. He took the other slide. He says, given the fact that nobody is giving me more information, he says, I'm going to vote with uh, the Sotomayor and Ginsburg. And so essentially what happened is the president's situation influenced everything that every one of the nine Supreme Court justices said, and it influenced it for the worse. And his attitude is, well, I've got nine of these people against me. That proves that I'm surely right in everything that I say. And what it does is it brings to the fore one of the least desirable characters characteristics of the Trump administration, which is his own exalted view of ego that says he could flout every tradition, culture, and norm 
that exist. And one of the things I think that's important to say in business is that you have a written contract. What goes on under that contract is hugely dependent upon the ability of the parties to that transaction to comply with industry norms and good faith judgments when they're working on their own behalf. And business only works because of that underlay. Well, the same thing is true at a government level with the Constitution. The number of tricky questions that are not specified in the Constitution is very, very large. And it's this notion of good faith behavior, this notion of adherence to comedy, custom, and norms, which fills the gap. And when you have a president who flouts all of that, every other branch of government is entitled to say, if he doesn't want to play by the rules, we view him under a, a, a lens of suspicion. And I think he just dissipates a huge amount of capital. And the problem with the president, quite simply, is he's used to running a business in which he's an autocrat. Uh, but the United States government, the United States Constitution, does not have autocracy as one of its uh, political options. Yeah, my last thought on this, you know, building on everything you just said in my comment before, is that I think in the end one of the great ironies of the administration as we see it play out in its first term is that even while President Trump is flouting convention, the conventions of the presidency and so on, sometimes to great political advantage and sometimes in counterproductive ways, the president's flouting all that convention while really relying on the accumulated capital of the presidency to accomplish what he wants to do in the absence of congressional support. Of course, it's the story of every presidential administration, at least the most recent ones, that as time goes by, the president tries to do more and more unilaterally through executive action. I think President Trump reached that point much more quickly than the others. But ultimately, all the space that's been created by Congress and by the courts to accommodate unilateral presidential action really reflects decades or centuries of accumulated intellectual, political, and reputational capital about the executive branch and its norms. And to see President Trump win political points by, by, by undermining or flouting those norms, while at the same time relying on that stock of accumulated capital to give him the space to declare emergencies and so, to declare emergencies and so on, is, I think, one of the great political ironies of our moment. Now, that said, Richard, we went on a bit long. I hope our listeners enjoyed this as much as I have. I do want to say, uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tune in to some of the other Hoover Institution podcasts, including Area 45 with Bill Whalen, Crossing Lines with Lonnie Chen, Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and there are many others, but especially uh, The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. And on behalf of Richard, thank you all for joining us today. We're looking forward to next time. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. 